Would you please take your Bibles and open up to Genesis 28. Genesis chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the one that is in the rack in the pew in front of you and take that Bible and turn to page 22. And on page 22, you will find Genesis chapter 28. This morning, we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis and we're going to look a bit more closely at Jacob's story. In Genesis chapter 28, I'd like you to look at verse 10. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Now it might, might not seem like it, but that is a loaded verse. Jacob here is actually fleeing for his life because his twin brother Esau wants to kill him. The story behind Jacob's flight to Haran is a sad one. He had manipulated his brother into giving him his birthright. Jacob had lied to his father, deceiving his father into giving him his brother Esau's blessing. Then his mother Rebekah, for his safety, sent him to Haran so that his brother wouldn't be able to kill him and also so he would find a wife. On the evening of the second day of Jacob's journey, Jacob stopped for the night. The text tells us that he came to a certain place on the outskirts of a city called Luz. Outside of town, Jacob made his bed. He used a stone for a pillow and he laid down to sleep. I imagine that Jacob had a hard time sleeping that night. Not just because he was using a stone for a pillow, but it's not very hard to imagine what was actually going through Jacob's mind. Jacob is running for his life from his twin brother. He has to be thinking about the choices that he had made, the questionable choices he had made. I wonder if he's starting to second guess some of the choices that he's made. He's alone and lonely on a 500 mile journey through a dangerous and foreign land. He had lied to his old blind father to steal his brother's blessing. He should have been feeling some level of guilt and shame for what he had done. Surely he is grieving over having to leave his mother has to be anxious about how Laban, Rebekah's brother, may receive him. He certainly doesn't have anything to offer his uncle when he arrives in Haran. All the while, wondering if his brother is going to catch up to him and kill him. I believe that Jacob must have felt like a very lost man. I think Jacob was likely at the end of himself. Have you ever felt like you were at the end of yourself? Maybe this morning you're sitting here in church. Maybe you're watching online and 
you feel like you are at the end of yourself. Maybe you were laying in bed last night alone and lonely, tossing and turning, wondering what's next. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. Maybe the pills and the alcohol are no longer working and you feel like you are close to a complete breakdown. Maybe your job isn't going as you thought it was supposed to go or your career path isn't the journey that you thought you would be on at this point. Maybe at work, you're taking the heat, you're taking the blame for a lot of things that are going on and you don't feel like any of it is really your fault. Maybe your children are avoiding you and saying bad things about you. And this morning you feel like a failure as a parent. Maybe you're going through a health crisis and down deep inside, you're afraid that you're gonna die. Maybe there's that particular sin that you have all the best intentions of overcoming, but you just continue to struggle and struggle. Maybe this morning you're at the end of yourself. The end of me can be a difficult and scary place, but it can also be a place of incredible hope and promise. You see, because many times it takes a crisis for us to realize that our plans and our abilities are not enough. And that crisis gives God an opening to break into our lives. See, the end of me helps us realize that we need the solution. Jacob had come to the end of himself. He had lost everything. His mom, his dad, his brother, his wealth for this blessing that he had to scheme to get Jacob is on his own for the first time with a guilty, confusing past and facing an anxious, uncertain future. Wrestling with a guilty, confusing past and anxious about an uncertain future. Do you feel that? Do you feel that way this morning? Here, Jacob is at the end of me. But then, but then, it may be two of the best words in the Bible. But then God shows up. At the point of Jacob's need, in the midst of his desperation, when he had come to the end of himself, God shows up and meets Jacob with his grace. 
Look at verse 12. While Jacob slept, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. Up until this point in his life, God had never spoken to Jacob. God had spoken to his grandfather, Abraham. God had spoken to his father, Isaac, but not to Jacob. For his whole life, he had lived on the borrowed faith of his grandfather and his father. It was not his own. In fact, earlier in Genesis, in chapter 27, verse 20, when Jacob is talking about the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, he refers to God as your God. But now, God speaks to Jacob. He speaks to Jacob in the time of his need, when he is at the end of himself, when he is experiencing a crisis that brings him to the end of me. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasure and shouts to us in our pain. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain, Lewis said, is God's megaphone to stir or to arouse a sleeping world. I wonder, is God trying to get your attention this morning? Look closely at the dream. Jacob saw a stairway extending from earth to heaven right where he happened to be. Angels, angels were going up and were going down the stairway. What are these angels doing? These angels are doing what angels do. They're carrying out God's will. They're answering prayers. They're guiding, they're providing, they're protecting, they're fighting and fending off the attacks of Satan. But most importantly, notice in this dream, at the top of the staircase stood God himself. Just think about it. Jacob at the bottom of the staircase and God himself at the top of the staircase. Then the Lord God speaks to Jacob for the very first time. Look at verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Man. Can you imagine how these words must have hit Jacob? Seriously, if you had done all the things wrong that Jacob had done, what would you expect God to say? Not this. I would not expect this. I would have expected some form of rebuke, maybe criticism. I would have expected God to crack on me and tell me that I'm way out of line, that I'm all wrong. It's not what God says to Jacob. God does not say a word about Jacob's failure. Instead, he assures Jacob 
about his future. And he promises him that he won't leave him. God was concerned about Jacob and he meets him in the midst of his need in the time of his desperation when Jacob is at the end of himself. And here, God specifically applies the promises that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac. He now applies those very promises to Jacob. That, my friends, is God's grace. That is God's unmerited favor upon Jacob. Look at Jacob's initial response, verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his dream, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. In your Bibles, underline that. The house of God, the gate of heaven. And I don't even really care if you underline it in the church Bibles. The house of God, the gate of heaven. Of course, this is an awesome place. Jacob understood that God was breaking into his life. Surely the Lord is in this place. It was the place where heaven and earth met. It was the place where God would come down to man and where man would find access to God. It was the stairway to access God's purposes and God's meeting of his needs. Jacob is there and able to receive God's help. So Jacob asserts that this is none other, this place is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. God always deals with us in grace. He is always working to show us his favor. In the midst of Jacob's desperation, at the time when he is at the end of himself, God shows up and he shows up to Jacob and he says, I know who you are and I see you. And Jacob, I love you and I'm never, ever going to leave you. My friend, it's what he's saying to you this morning. I see you. I know who you are. I love you. And I'm never, ever going to leave you. If you are here this morning and you don't know what comes next and you're overwhelmed, God says, I'm with you. If you're here this morning and your job is not going the way you think it should go and your career is in reverse, God is saying to you this morning, I am with you. For your family, God is saying, I am with you. In your health, he knows you're scared. And he's saying to you this morning, I am with you. And that particular sin that you cannot seem to overcome, he knows your struggle. And he's saying, I am with you. In the midst of your crisis, 
God is trying to break into your life to demonstrate his grace and to say to you, I am with you. So what should be our response? What should be the response to this type of grace? Look at verse 18. The response to God breaking into our lives. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel. Bethel means house of God. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. When Jacob awoke from his dream, he was ready to worship. He poured oil on a stone as a way of memorializing the place, the place where he had met God. The pillar was meant to serve as a memorial. It was also the place to which he would return later to build an altar of worship to the Lord. Then Jacob made a vow. This is the first vow offered to God in the Bible, the very first vow. Look at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, at first, it sounds like Jacob may be making a bargain with God, like he's trying to negotiate his way to a blessing. However, I think that Jacob is actually responding to God's promise by saying, wow, I can't believe that you are offering all of this to me in the midst of my need and in the midst of my desperation. You are showing up with this unmerited favor. I can't, surely, if you are going to do all that, then I am going to do these three things in response. The first promise that Jacob makes is he says, the Lord will be my God. Now, this had to be a difficult, I think, this had to be a very difficult promise for Jacob. He's a deceiver. Deceivers like to make their own plans. Deceivers like to get to the ends by any means they want to use to get to the ends. But here, Jacob is declaring that God is God and he, Jacob, is not. I think he recognized that he deserved condemnation for his sin, but he also saw that God himself showed up and showed him grace. He is surrendering himself and all that he is to God. Listen closely to me. He is submitting to God's rule and God's rules. Lord, you are going to be my God. I am submitting to your rule and to your rules. The first promise. The second promise, the stone pillar that he set up will be God's house. He promised to make a place where God would be worshiped. Many years later, Jacob returned to this site, to Beth Al, and he built an altar there to the Lord and he called it El Bethel, which means the God of Bethel. 
And Bethel became one of the most important places of worship in all of Israel. Jacob in this second promise recognizes the importance of worshiping God. Then thirdly, Jacob promised to give God a 10th of everything he would ever have. This promise of a 10th or a tithe is interesting because it predates the Mosaic law when Moses prescribed that followers of God would give a 10th or a tithe back to God. Jacob's offering predates that instruction. Now, maybe Jacob heard about his his grandfather Abraham honoring Melchizedek with the 10th. We're not sure, but what we are sure of is Jacob makes quite a pledge here. He promises to give God a 10th of everything he is going to receive. And by doing so acknowledges that he is no longer in control of his future. And now God is in control of his future. And because God is in control of his future, he is going to honor God tangibly with something that he can return to the Lord. So he promises this 10th. Clearly, Jacob has met with the Lord. Because when you meet with the Lord, you are changed in your inmost being. And that is what is starting to happen to Jacob. And he responds with a vow. You are my God. I am going to worship you. And I am going to tangibly respond to what you have given me, recognizing that you are in control. When you meet with God, this is what happens in your life. And Jacob met with God. This morning, do you feel like you are at the end of yourself? Were you tossing and turning last night? Did you come into this room this morning with your last bit of energy and breath? My friend, God has called you here this morning to meet you in your time of desperation. You may be here and you may think it is a coincidence. You may be watching online and you may think, well, I just kind of turned this channel on. No, you are here because God wants to meet with you. Maybe he wants to meet with you for the very first time. And maybe he just wants to know you better and have you know him better. He has a stairway for you. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter one. John chapter one, it's found on page 861 in that Bible that you took from the rack in front of you. In John chapter one, John introduces us to Jesus. John was one of Jesus's disciples who recorded his time with Jesus. That's what this book is. This book of John, this gospel of John is John's testimony about his time with Jesus. At the end of John chapter one, John tells us how Jesus called a few of his disciples. First, Jesus had a conversation with a man named Philip. Jesus approaches Philip, 
has some type of conversation that we're not completely sure about what is said, but he ends up instructing Philip. He says, follow me. Philip, realizing that there is something very special about Jesus, decides that he is going to follow Jesus. Philip then does what friends do. When you hear some very special news, you go and tell another friend. So Philip goes and tells his friend Nathaniel about Jesus. Look at verse 45. Philip said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's quite a claim. Philip says to Nathaniel, we found him. We found the one. We found the one that Moses, hundreds, thousands of years ago, the one that Moses talked about. We found the one who the prophets talked about. We found the one. We found the son of man. We found the Messiah. Well, Nathaniel, understandably, is incredibly skeptical. He's also skeptical because Philip told him that Jesus came from Nazareth. Nazareth is kind of this podunk village. It's kind of a nasty place. So how could anything good come from Nazareth? Philip just says, come and see. Just come and see. So Nathanael decided to go meet Jesus. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now this is so interesting. We're not there in Genesis yet, but later in the book of Genesis, God changes Jacob's name. Does anybody remember what God changes Jacob's name to? Israel. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And Jacob was a deceiver. Now, when Jesus sees Nathanael coming, he says, here is a true Israelite, one from the line of Jacob, who is not a deceiver. Jesus revealed to Nathanael that he knew him. He understood who he was. He was a truth teller. So then Nathanael asks Jesus, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. What? That's crazy talk. And Nathanael was blown away. What Philip said about Jesus must be true. Look at verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, which I would argue is the only logical response. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Did you catch that? Jesus mentions a stairway. He mentions a stairway where angels are ascending, they're going up and they're descending, they're going down. Jesus mentions this stairway. Where have we heard this? Genesis 28. 
This is Jacob's stairway that Jesus is referring to, but Jesus makes a change. Jesus says here that he is actually the stairway. He is the one on whom the angels ascend and on whom the angels descend. He is the one who makes the connection between man and between God. He is the one who is the bridge between man and between God. He is the one who makes it possible to gain access to heaven. He is the gate of heaven. Do you remember what Jacob's response was in Genesis 28, verse 16? Surely the Lord is in this place. This place is awesome. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. John here is saying, actually, Jesus here is saying in John 1 that I am the gate of heaven. If you want to get to God, you go through me. And as God wants to get to you, he goes through Jesus as well. And the angels ascend and the angels descend through Jesus Christ, the son of God. And what has happened is that a person has eclipsed the place. It's no longer exclusively about place. It's no longer about Bethel, the house of God, as a place. It is about the person, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the gate of heaven. But he is also more than just the gate of heaven. He is the house of God. Now listen to me. Jesus made a person more important than a place, but he did not negate the importance of a place. Jacob had a very special place. Jesus is a very special person, the son of God, who is the bridge between man and God. But Jesus also has a special place. And my friends, it is this place. It is Calvary Church. And this is how this works. Because Jesus Christ lives in his followers through the spirit of God, this place becomes a special place because Jesus himself is here uniquely residing in each one of us who believe in him. And because of that, Jesus as a person meets us in our time of desperation when we are at the end of ourselves. But he also can meet us, not exclusively, but he also meets us through the house of God, his people who act as the hands and the feet of Jesus and demonstrate his love and his grace to those who are in need, who are hurting, and who are at the end of themselves. Look at This is so cool. Look at how Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. If you believe in Jesus, you are not a foreigner, you are not a stranger, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus is not only the gate of heaven, Jesus is also the house of God. Jesus as the gate of heaven meets us in our time of desperation. He meets us when we are at the end of ourselves and he demonstrates his grace, his unmerited favor. Jesus is looking at you this morning. You are here, you are here because Jesus has brought you here this morning and he is looking at you and he is saying, I see you, I know you. I know the hurt and I know the pain that you are experiencing and I love you. And my grace is available to you. And he is also here as the house of God through each one of us who believe in him. So each one of us who believe in him have the opportunity to reach out to the person who is sitting next to you and recognize and see their pain and see their hurt and see that they may be at the end of themselves and reach out and say, God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And we Calvary Church are going to demonstrate Jesus's grace. My friend, if you are here this morning and you are at the end of yourself, God is using this crisis to break into your life. It may be for the first time. It may be because you need to know him better. Jesus is here this morning for you. So what should be your response? Your response is you should take a knee. You should take a knee and you should declare, the Lord is my God. The Lord is my God. And I am going to submit myself to his rule and to his rules. Because he has in mind for me what is good and what is best. You should submit yourself. You should take a knee and declare that in response, you are going to worship God you're going to declare that worship is important and to declare that worship is important in this place because this is the place that God has called you to worship. If it's your first time here, maybe he has not called you here for an extended time. But for those of you who have been here, this is the place to which God has called you to worship. And then finally, you're going to bend the knee and you're going to offer to God a tangible demonstration of your love by giving back to him what he has so graciously given to you.
God wants to meet you in your crisis. He's trying to break into your life. Bend your knee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am on bended knee this morning to declare that you are my God, that I will worship you in this place and that I will tangibly give back to you in the demonstration of my love for you. Lord, I pray that you will help me stay in a position of submission to you, that I would recognize that my life is not my own, but that it was purchased on a cross. Would I pray for myself? I pray for each person in this room, for each person who is listening online. I pray, Lord, that they would stop trying to run away from you, that they'd stop trying to fight you. Lord, that they would recognize that you work in grace and your unmerited favor is theirs. Lord, help them to bend the knee. And in doing so, declare how great you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.